Hi, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician in Tucson, Arizona, a gay man, and I take care of a lot of transgender youth in my practice. And I'm Lisette Trujillo. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am a mother of a 13-year-old trans son, advocate, Mexican-American, first generation, and a small business owner. And this is... I Stand By You... With Lizette. And Drew. <laughs> Together, we talk about allyship. Building community. And showing up for one another. Welcome. Welcome. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast and you like it, please like, subscribe, leave a review. Those sorts of things help more people to hear about the podcast and to get the word out. Thanks a lot. We're really excited about today. Um, and we, I think we've got a great discussion coming up. Hey, um, welcome to our podcast. And today's guest, I'm really excited. Um, we have a developmental pediatrician, Dr. Kachana Bosaroy, um, who, interesting coincidence, was trained as a fellow at the same place where I was a medical student, but we did not meet until uh, quite a few later, years later here in Tucson. Um, and earlier uh, last week, um, she did a wonderful lecture on um, racism as a developmental health risk. Um, brought up some points that I was like, I think those would be great on our podcast. So, um, Dr. Bossera, if you can introduce yourself a little bit. Okay, so thank you. First of all, I thank you for giving me this opportunity to uh, spread the word and awareness around in a more non-medical context and a community context. So thank you for that. Um, as an introduction, uh, professionally, I am a pediatrician and uh, I am specialized in developmental behavioral beads and also certified in neurodevelopmental disabilities in children in plain English. What it means is I work with children with disabilities and not so much disabilities. So I work with behavior management and uh, developmental evaluation uh, for all children age 0 to 21. My other introduction, which is uh, the whole of me, I am a woman of color. I am an immigrant. I did my medical school in India and moved permanently uh, to U.S. Uh, when I was 28 years. I had the green card from way early on, uh, but I took the citizenship later for emotional purposes. I'm also an international medical graduate, uh, so because I did not do medical school here in the U.S., and uh, again, uh, I'm very much an advocate for children which and human 
rights, um, a, a, a social, I am a fight for social justice, and I'm very much into advocacy for not only developmental disabilities, but all sorts of areas. Thank Wonderful. you for doing that incredible work. And um, the way that I heard about you is uh, I got a text message and Dr. Cronin was like, I'm in this amazing session uh, that talks about the intersection of um, race and development in youth, in children. Um, and so we were just really excited to have this conversation with you and to hear about how your research and what you have found. I too am a woman of color, uh, born and raised here in Tucson, Arizona. I'm Mexican American, and I have a transgender uh, 13-year-old. So I too see myself as an advocate, and I, I feel. And my husband's an immigrant, um, and uh, recently naturalized two years ago. So I, um, I felt uh, curious and kind of excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So the Grand Rounds idea uh, took place because I have to give thanks uh, to uh, our group that we have, which is called the Race Card, and it's a group of developmental behavioral pediatricians who are part of a great international organization called Society of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics. And we have been working, so I personally did not do most of the research work, but I've been interested in for 30 years now. And how I became originally interested is because I have two boys and one girl, and my two boys uh, uh, have darker skin color than I do or my girl does. And from early on, we have been um, we have been thinking about what race means and how much color and skin tone, which is the visible factor in race, is affecting A, the development of children, and B, how does experiencing racism affect the development of children? So when I did this talk, uh, and this talk was very research-based. Usually I don't do talks like that, but because this is such a sensitive subject, I wanted it to be fully evidence-based so that the, that this talk was for the doctors. The pediatricians would be able to understand that I'm just not talking about personal experiences, but we're talking how important research and evidence in this field is. So the topic was basically racism as sorry racism is a developmental issue period and the second part is race as a predictor of developmental trajectory and that's a big huge question mark and i'll go yeah. more into that because that affects children including my own because remember, racism and race is a social construct. Yes. There's yeah. no biological determinants of race. And 
what another important point to remember is the race is your own perception as well as the other's perception and it's so my oldest son uh, clearly identifies himself as a black american hmm. because it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is what because the experience he's had being a dark-skinned boy has been as the experience of any other black American. It doesn't matter they're from India or they're of Hispanic origin or they're from Africa or uh, West Indies or Trinidad. It doesn't matter where you're from. If your experience is in the United States of America is that of a black American, you're going to perceive yourself as a black American. And that's how I got into the literature more and more. In those days, in the 80s and 90s, all the literature uh, pointed to the fact that black Americans, especially boys, gender is very important, develop late. They're behind in all areas of development. Intelligence, which is cognition, social-emotional, literacy, language, everything. And um, this is very personal. When my son actually, the oldest son, when he was doing PhD very early on in life, and even in New York City, um, he was told, uh, you yeah, not lying when he said he spoke full sentences at 16 months, which is a truth. And uh, he, he, and he tried to point out that therefore in literature, that there are no differences when we account for socioeconomic differences and other communal poverty differences the professor was mad at him, and it started a big uh, altercation. I'm very happy to report to 2011, a wonderful study, which did control for factors like socioeconomic status, poverty, uh, other demographic factors, lack of resources, living in poor neighborhoods who have poor schools, poor uh, opportunities. When we control for all of that, there is no difference. There is yeah. no difference among black boys and other children in all areas of difference in, in development. In fact, in some areas, they did better. So that is one real important factor to consider that race maybe has nothing to do with development of yeah. developmental milestones. And it's, it's amazing. I remember um, he, the first time, one of the first studies about race um, and development slash intelligence was in medical school. I remember hearing about these crazy experiments from, I want to say the turn of the century, but I'm afraid it was probably much later than that, of um, filling dead people's skulls with rice or something and saying that 
um, certain weights of skulls were more apparent with certain races, and that meant they were obviously smarter. And thinking how crazy that was and how long ago it was, and it really is even right now that we've got these biases built into our research, built into our information, and that it has huge effects. Yes, and that is so profound that when younger generation uh, try to do better research uh, and they try to bring that up, they meet with such opposition. Oh, these millennials, they know nothing. Are all these, we have to learn from our, the research and paths of our younger generation while we're drawing from experiences of older generation and in all areas of life. Uh, because, and that brings us to how racism is a developmental issue when where we've already stated very clearly that race is not a factor in developmental milestones mm -hmm. and intelligence, right. but racism is developed. Uh, we are not on races again because racism is not a biological determinant. It is unfortunately taught to us from families and societies, and that's why it's so important to promote the awareness that if racism is taught and developed after birth and doesn't have a biological determinancy, then we can stop it. We can stop yeah. it because we can unlearn it and not teach it for future generations. As someone who is not part of the medical world, are you both seeing the need for medical professionals to disentangle racism from practice, from the practice of medicine? Are you seeing more of a push or an effort? Because we know that there are medical disparities and, um, and so is that starting to happen more? Is that conversation occurring more? Thank you for the question. Thank you for the question because, yes, we are. We have a lot of work to do. That's why we yeah. formed two years ago the race card, and it is about racism awareness of child development, and it is for professionals. So what we uh, see is our biases, which are so ingrained in our brain for generations of conditioning. It's not going to go away. So again, because race is a social construct and because racism has been occurring for hundreds of years, it's going to take time because the perception is ingrained in everybody's mind, which includes medical professionals. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. is why we have to be very deliberately aware of our biases. And one thing I want not only doctors, for every single human being to accept, we are all racist and we are all genderist. 
What we want us to do is accept that first period. No defense, no but. But I'm a person of color. I'm black. How can I be racist? Of course we can. We all have racial prejudices, bias and preconceived notions and stereotypes, no matter how much we want. So what we do about it first is acknowledge it. Second, action, actively, deliberately, proactively work towards overcoming that. It's not easy. We say that all the time. We're not racist. We're not racist. We all have biases, no matter what color or gender we are. And the same goes for genderism, same goes for uh, LGBT issues, all of it, because we have generations of conditioning. How can we overcome it? By taking action. What's the action? Be very cognizant about it, very deliberately aware of it, and slowly, by active listening, I have this all these A's going on here because I do... Uh, teach like that with the, it's, I think it's catchy people remember it and it's fun so again acknowledge first first acknowledge then active listening to somebody who is saying that they have felt microaggressions they have felt blatant racism don't go to defend yourself I'm not racist I'm a socialist I'm liberal and I'm a person of color. How can I be racist? You can be. And I studied uh, sociology in school. Doesn't matter. We are all racist. Absolutely. What we have to do is overcome it by deliberate action and spreading the word by not putting people on the spot. I feel if we all, you know, are in together. And we are aware of the facts and we accept it and acknowledge it, but we don't accept the racism. Mm. We don't accept the genderism, but we just acknowledge that it exists and we are part of society. Mm-hmm. It's not they, it's we. Absolutely. I always hear they did this meaning the black people. Mm -hmm. They did this. No, it's not a different entity. They, they, they. This is going to promote divide. It's we, and we're all part of it together. I'm in a book club. We're reading uh, Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped, which discusses the long history of slavery and racism and uh, all the way into modern times and just kind of like how it evolved over his, hundreds of years in, in history. And uh, I'm the only woman of color in this group. And I was telling them sometimes as a woman of color, it feels like you're doing double the work because I have to work through my internalized racism and then race and then contend with racism in the world. And then in, in, my, in, in my, because many of us were colonized, there's levels of colorism and uh so there's all these kind of messages around skin color and race and being a woman that we that meet at intersections that we have to work through that discomfort and i will say that when my child my son came out as transgender 
it was that opening that of that opening of discomfort because I was aware of the ways that I felt uncomfortable and perceived in the world and had experienced racism myself, but I, I didn't realize how much I gendered my world, right? And so that opened my opened me up to discomfort in meeting a different experience and showing up as an ally. And so I was always very grateful for that because I think it really shifted my my world and allowed me the vulnerability to say I understand that I carry biases and racism within me and I'm willing to learn and work through that. Yes, exactly. Similar to me, this goes back to how we learn from our children, you know. And so I experienced this difference, again, racism, not genderism, because I'm Indian and I grew up in India and had both parents who are Indian, from India. However, my father studied in England. So I was brought up in a very, very liberal, progressive uh, Indian society that I'm constantly feeling uh, I don't fit in. When I came, people are like, oh, you eat non-veg? Yeah, I've always eaten non-veg. Mm-hmm. Oh, but Indians don't. So I played table tennis. I was a national school table tennis player. And when I came here, I was like, why the people like, oh, Indian women play sports? So I had all these, pre- uh, again, stereotypes of being an Indian. Mm-hmm. When my children grew up, when the boys, my first boys started growing up, um, by the way, Uh, This is off topic, but when I first started living here, my uh, my oldest son was 16 months. I was appalled by the genderism that I saw in the U.S. Male boy toys, girl toys, pink and blue, and I was scolded openly by people because I dared to put a red uh, knickerbocker that had knit for my oldest son. And because it wasn't the color for a boy, and I was bringing up him as a girl, and I was cross-dressing, I was like, I'm from India, and I'm appalled at the genderism in America. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is as a side. <laughs> but you're right, as a woman uh, for color, we get both. But what I learned from my children was how to understand that, uh, that, and we are gen- uh, racist. Again, you'll see Indians being racist against blacks. There's a movie, Mississippi Masala, made in the 90s, I think, mm-hmm. or even earlier. Denzel Washington was a real young, uh, good looking actor over there. And <laughs> I remember I went to see it for Denzel Washington, but I ended up liking the movie because mm-hmm. it talked about racism within different color groups, you know, yeah. different ethnicities. Now we bring in ethnicities inside. But what I learned from my children were their experiences as black. And that was different because they are not, uh, they did not experience slavery. They are from upper class educationally and family-wise. And it was a interesting experience that no matter how educated you are so my oldest son for instance 
because of his dark skin color, we lived in a very a nice um, upper middle class neighborhood in Queens, New York, which is, by the way, the most um, um, uh, number of languages and race and ethnicities in the world. Even there, he was followed by our own security service coming home at night, his only uh, crime that is tall and dark, and uh, he's perceived as a, uh, and young, and male. Tall, dark, young male. Yeah. So they can't come to a uh, nice neighborhood. If they're coming to a nice neighborhood, it must be to rob. He was coming home, to his own home. Yeah. Well. Yes. <sighs> So the other thing we uh, attacked in the ground rounds is uh, the development of racism, and it is very early. I have, in fact, pointed it out to even professionals. It's as early as preschool. Mm-hmm. So that is where we have to people say, but we don't want to hurt them. We don't want to talk about them, about all these serious issues. We have to, because that's where it starts. And if families are talking negative uh, and about blacks or certain gender preferences or certain sexual preferences. I was so sad when I moved to Tucson. I do projective type questioning and I went crying and I talked to my children about it. And a 15-year-old lovely boy, uh, I never do this in the first visit. I was talking about projective type questioning and I was talking about three wishes and he said, I wish there were no gays in the world. Mm. My son said, what did you say? And I said, I said nothing. Remember active listening. I did not jump, oh gosh, he's such a bad person. He wants to kill all the gays and he hates gays. No. I listened and I listened. And you know what came out? He's not wishing that he wants to get rid of all the gays. That's how it came out because he's 15, but what he is, is he's strongly, such a strong religious belief that homosexuality is such a sin that he's wishing it did not exist. What it came across is very different, but uh, then we can actually have a conversation, not then, later, but... 15 is too late. Mm. These things are so already well-defined. So the development of gender identity, race identity, racism starts in the preschool area in three to five, that early. Of course, it is cemented in the adolescent period. Mm. But if we can talk and converse and teach at an early age, we can prevent this extremism by the time they get to adults. And my whole point is start early, just like in anything else, we have to start early. You know, I, when does race identity um, develop? Is it, is it the same like 
30 to 48 months or so that um, gender identity is emerging in kids? Exactly. Same. Because wow. it's, again, development psychologically. It's uh, the developmental te- theories, whether we do, do look at Piaget or whatever. So it is basically the pre-operational period. It is early. It is in the preschool. So practical examples is when we, kids go to preschool and they suddenly realize that little kids had darker skin and darker hair and they come home and did not they're just commenting on it but then that's the opportunity to parents to farm so now if the parents then say yes but you know they're all human beings and you know talk about it in a very factual manner that people of different color different hair different skin but our blood is all the same remember they're pre-operational so you have to be very concrete our blood is all the same we are all human beings or oh, that's a different scenario on the other it, we but if the same family is like, oh, you have a black boy in your class, you know what? You shouldn't be associating with them. They're different. They're not being derogatory. Parents say, but we're not being derogatory. We're just saying it's they're different. But that's what we sow it in the mat. So race identity, gender identity, as well as racism, genderism, but starts that early and what we put and what we emulate and what role model we uh, show as parents, as teachers, as adults in the child's life, they imbibe that very early and it gets fixated very early. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying we can't change it, just like in language development, the earlier the barrels, because we we have to teach the children not by saying, nobody listens to what we say, but <laughs> modeling appropriate. Mm-hmm. So if you say to your child, oh, you know, blacks are very uh, good people too. And I'm like, what? So when I, I'll give you an example. When I came first and I was doing residency in New York, I heard someone tell another one, oh, that medical student, his father is a surgeon, but he's nice. And I'm like, what? <laughs> his father is a surgeon, but he's nice. So all surgeons are not supposed to be nice. His father is a surgeon. Same thing with race. He's a black kid, but he's intelligent. How many times I've heard that? Oh, she's dark-skinned. I grew up in India, remember? Mm-hmm. But she's good-looking. Right. But my son also says, even in apologies, oh, I'm sorry I hurt you, but my children have taught me. Once you say that, but, it's gone. Complimenting mm-hmm. people. I hear that all the time with my daughter. Oh, my gosh, she's so tall and beautiful. You know, Indian people have beautiful hair, beautiful skin. You just took away the compliment, you know? When Mm. you bring race into it, you bring everybody else into it. We just, all we have to learn is not show the 
differences, not even look at the differences. We are all human beings. We all are beautiful. We all are smart. We all, and again, I work with children with developmental disabilities. We are all smart. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? IQ doesn't show you it's a smart or not. It's only one type of smartness. We are all smart. Mm-hmm. We are all beautiful. And we all have the potential to grow up to be self-sustaining individuals physically, financially, except for very little percentage, thank God, that have really profound intellectual disability and profound medical or other illnesses. That's a very, very small percentage. Rest of us all, we can grow up to be self-sustaining human beings and not be racist, not be genderist, not have any other biases and not have sexual orientation or gender identity or anything else, color our perception. Mm -hmm. But we have to work hard towards it. Yeah. And I think, too, a a big factor in why we cannot um, push the needle to be more anti-racist is because assimilation has been so ingrained in us. Um, This idea of patriotism and assimilation. But I I was having this conversation in this book club and I was telling them assimilation still centers white, white, whiteness and Eurocentricness, right? This idea of what, where do we assimilate, right? And this idea of colorblindness as well not then embracing differences in cultures and foods and understanding that these differences enrich our lives as opposed to take away from. Um, Yes. So again, my children are in sociology, psychology, and my youngest also is in uh, family studies and development. And we've had many profound conversations. The bottom line is, When we're looking towards assimilation, we are basically giving, ready to give up our self-identity, whether it's ethical, ethnicity, or religion, or culture, or uh, we can't give up a color. That's the only problem. So, and we assimilate means, like you said, becoming white American. Mm When we day we get it that America is not just white America. We are all Americans who we want to be. Who want to be Americans? We mm-hmm. are Americans. And you don't want to be that's absolutely perfect. You don't have to be. But if you choose to be Americans, I because people say, Oh, so you're an Indian American, I'm like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I am from India. I perceive myself as an Indian American. I do Bharatnatyam and I did, but my kids are uh, black Americans. My husband is a Hispanic American. I don't know. This is so complicated. I don't know what American. My daughter in her poem said it so well. She was only 16 or 17. Don't paint us in black and white. Yes. We are more. 
We are my read of clothes, and that uh, video was she did that as at a talent show in LaGuardia School, and. People loved it so much that my daughter, who never puts anything on YouTube, she had to put it on YouTube because she was not going to not put it because everybody needed it and it would help other children. We don't have to form an identity just like, you know, a gender. We mm. could, whatever you perceive yourself, that is it. And it is not in our control, this perception. So perception of race, I never told my son, oh, you're Indian. You have to be Indian. What is this black thing going on? A lot of people would say that. Mm -hmm. It's also very sad. People, when they say American, people just mean white American of a certain color, certain religion, certain uh, ethnicity, and we have the power to change that. We can assimilate. So our goal should be more integration. And in that respect, I am also not in favor of the self-segregation we see, especially in cities like New York. We, I mean, I was so stunned when I asked someone when I first came here, why do we associate with only Bengalis? Why don't you have any other friends? That person looked at me very stunned and said, there are so many Bengalis. Why should I need any other friends? Mm. And I'm like, okay, I know to back off. Like we grew up in, uh, in New York. If anyone asks me who I, where I'm from, I say, I'm a New Yorker. I'm New York. That's where, when I moved to Tucson, I'm, people said, don't worry. Lots of Indians here. I'm like, that's not who I'm missing. I'm missing all my Polish mommies. I'm missing my Greek daddies. I'm missing my Italian grandmas. I'm missing my Jewish mothers. I'm missing, and again, Judaism is a religion, not a race. But I'm just saying, I'm missing all my Bangladesh people, my West Indian, all my whites, my blacks, and so many different kinds of Hispanics. Peru and Colombia, I miss that in Arizona. But people don't get it. People are like, I must be, because I'm Indian, I must be missing Indians. This self-segregation and uh, making our boundaries smaller and smaller is the root cause, in my mind, of so many problems. The wider we make our minds, the wider we make our friend circle, and friends is not just someone you work with. Oh, I am not racist, I work with this black man, you know? Right. I'm talking yeah. about, and I practice what I teach, our family is a virtual UN. <laughs> we have all colors <laughs> religion <laughs> with our spouses. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing, and I like that. So we we are looking for more integration, and some cities have done it better. I hear Houston is more integrated than New York, and by integration, we are not giving up anything of our self-identity, but we are integrating and, uh, uh, and associating and being friends, and once we to that on a regular basis, then in a few generations, we may be able to get rid of the they, because everybody will be a we, 
there will be no day because we are fully integrated. But in the meantime, we have to be actively aware of the facts that, yes, black boys, especially boys, are not any more violent, any more disordered mentally or behaviorally or developmentally than any other kid. We are the same and they should treated the same. There's so much research on how little black boys, six-year-olds, gets the police called on them from school for a very minor behavioral naughtiness that anyone could have done. Yes. ADHD or not. We, we, they're more punitive. We are more punitive towards black boys and forget black teenagers, teenage boys, and forget black men. Yes. I tell all my black fathers, don't touch your uh, uh, daughter or son. Don't touch them. Forget hitting them. Another person will get away with it. You will be jailed forever. Yeah. Mm. Wow. When did, you might know this better, when did our schools start being so much more policed? Um, I mean, I can remember maybe once in my entire um, school experience, the police being called. And it was a big enough thing that like everybody talked about it. And now there's these huge percentages of schools with police permanently in the school. When did that change? After Columbia, the first shooting. After Columbia, first shooting. And sadly enough, none. Zero of the school shootings are done by black boys. Zero. But after the first shooting, I'm not blaming schools and teachers. There were police from up down. So they don't know. So they have to be much more strict. And because of, and sadly, what was the consequence? Little black boys, because of perception issues and our inherent and racial bias are being called up upon more, punished more, getting more consequences. You won't believe the stories I have. Six-year-old black boy, New York City, six-year-old black boy, Tucson, Arizona, six-year-old black boy, Nevada, forget Alabama and Louisiana. These are the places I've worked in. It is everywhere. They are more punished. They have police called on them. And yet, we look back and not one, not one school shooting has been done by a black boy. My sister's an educator, and she told me a story about a teacher who was uh, purposefully lowering the grade of a young black girl in school. And so the young girl would do her homework, receive the grade, but it would get entered at a lower, at, in a lower grade, as a lower grade. And luckily, this young student had kept track and, and held on to all of her work and went to my sister and was like, I think this is happening to me because when I check my grade, it's lower than it should be. Um, yes, that sister, does happen. And my sister was appalled and and. Uh, So the levels of racism in all facets of life and how uh, black youth are impacted 
it, we can't even scratch or grasp at that, right? Because we just think police brutality, but it, it shows up in the workplace, in schools. Um, and so it's always disappointing when you hear those stories and terrifying because how many kids don't have the capacity to ac- advocate for themselves? Exactly. So again, a story. And Drew, remember I showed the research on this that in school, black kids, both women and men, and if the girl is a girl, genderism comes in, and black, and if it's she wants to be a mathematician or science, she's doomed, and if a black boy like my children wants to do psychology and sociology, they are doomed because it's, again, perception. And there's research on it, how they are put in lower classes because of lower expectations, and they have to fight. In my own oldest son, you know, in New York, we have this specialized high school, Bronx Science and Stuyvesant, and he had to take an exam. And we can choose a high school depending on a merit. And we have a list. My own oldest son, the guidance counselor, and in a New York school, sent back me back that list. He didn't know who I was. And said, change the school because he's not going to get into any of these schools. And I sent it back saying, my list stands. He ended up going to Bronx Science, but what if he didn't? Doesn't matter. Who are you to tell someone that you can't do it? A seven-year-old black girl in a school, I do school health as to go into schools, and was, as I asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, sweetheart? And she said, I want to be a doctor like you. The principal was standing nearby, and you know what she said? Yeah, right. Guess what? Ready for this? She's a woman and a black woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. What are we doing to our kids? Yeah. What are we doing? And how many people can fight for themselves? Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the internalizing of racism, right? This idea of... of of buying into the uh, the racism that is taught to us, right? Um, and projected, and I wish people could understand that. I mean, I have lots of conversations with my child about internalized transphobia. What does that look like when you internalize because you live in a binary world that says you don't belong, you're not normal? And how do we check in with ourselves to make sure we're not buying into those ideas, right? Um, and feeling that he can, challenge and feel safe in challenging those ideas of not feeling good um, about who you are and in your place in the world. That's what Drew brought up actually very nicely that as uh, all of these racism as a ace, ace is an adverse childhood event. Mm -hmm. So racism and other perceptions, whether it's towards sexual orientation or to gender identity, this causes so much psychological trauma Mm -hmm. and add to it all the other trauma that this child experiences throughout life. And I presented some statistics in the grand rounds, which is so sobering that what happens is you feel the psychological trauma, then you behave badly, inappropriately, because 
cause of the trauma having no outlet, then you're giving more behavioral and mental health diagnosis and medications, and you end up in a mental institution or in jail. And yeah. this could have been avoided. Yeah. Yes. No, it's amazing how those labels, and I was really, that research I found quite exciting because I remember the first time I looked at, so there's this thing for the, the non-doctors in the world um, called the acute child, um, I'm sorry, uh, adverse childhood experiences. Yes. It includes things like your family didn't have enough food, didn't have permanent housing, uh, someone went to jail or your parents were divorced, things like that. And I remember reading that and thinking, I really do wonder what, how many points on that scale, race, um, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, what those things add to this list. Um, and it's one of those things I think a lot of people also, they forget because we're so bad at intersectionality and holding two things in our heads at the same time um, that, you know, parents of trans kids are not immune from, um, you know, losing their house or having someone get seriously ill. Um, and it, we hold on to one thing at a time. And so I was, I, I think someday we're going to see a much longer ACEs list. We are. So already seeing it for the doctors. We are actively doing research on it. Um, by we, I don't mean I. I mean all the doctors, the pediatricians and developmentalists. We are also looking with the ADHD and uh, how race plays a role in diagnosis and gender plays a role. We are looking into how much trauma this causes uh, in a very factual manner because we do need facts and evidence. Only when we do have that combined with personal experience and emotions, then we can change laws. We can change, advocate for different policy uh, and that's when we can see real change. There are two ways for change and it has to go simultaneously. One is research, evidence, facts that leads to laws and policies. That's what sociologists and anthropologists do. The other is us clinically spreading awareness, working with, uh, talking about it, and being very clear in every clinical or non-clinical encounter that it is a cultural diverse encounter. I do do a lecture on cultural diversity, I'm sorry, cultural humility. I don't call it cultural competency because we don't need to be competent. We just have to be eager to learn uh, for the doctors and the residents. And we can talk about it later, how every single encounter is a culturally diverse encounter. Uh, but it's in social life or in uh, professional life or in education. And when we combine the ACEs, like Drew mentioned, poverty, communal poverty, lack of education, lack of resources, lack of housing, and lack of 
parental, the research is done on maternal education and depression and drugs and all these negative uh, things. And when you combine it with race, we are in real trouble. However, yeah. there's hope. I have my own friends and I'll present on that later who's a police officer in Chicago, which she started in the South Chicago uh, school. It started with a summer program and then it is a school. She's been mentioned on uh, CNN, you know, Everyday Hero. She was one of the top 10. And she's trying to work that when we give positive, forget all the negatives the negative predictors, when we give the positive, we give a different schooling because the schools in poor neighborhoods are poor. So mm -hmm. it's going to keep on going. When you have experienced domestic violence and child abuse, you're going to do the same. So you have to break that negative downward spiral and just turn it upwards. How do we do that? Just appropriate schooling. We can't take them away from the families and community. That is not the goal. So uplift the whole community. Right. Right. Well, I feel like we could talk to you for hours, but our time <laughs> is cutting short. So we always end this with what are three easy, pragmatic ways that somebody could do listening to this today do to be an ally? to end racism. Thank you for asking that. Uh, very easy. You know what? When we perceive things as difficult, we can't do it. This is a societal problem. There's no way out. That's what is not. So three pragmatic, practical ways. A, in community, in your regular life, you don't have to be a teacher or a doctor, just a person. Think deliberately. All people are equal. And the more you commend the children, praise them, and deliberately, deliberately think to yourself that, yes, that kid is no different than any other kid. That positivity, I'm doing this, by the way, uh, again, I'm diverting, but I think it's important for mask training. Mm -hmm. So all my kids, even two-year-olds are wearing masks like a champ in my kid. And these are kids with uh, disabilities because I don't do general peace practice. So when we go to the community, see a kid in a mask, say, hey, good job. Parents will be happy, kids will be happy. It's so the same thing. We have to work on ourselves mm -hmm. and be completely deliberately aware every single encounter we have with human beings yeah. that everybody is thing. The other two pragmatic ways, very, very, again, easy, let's provide resources, lack of resources, lack of healthcare, lack of housing. So that, again, it's not difficult. We all do it together and we make get involved, get involved, that is anti-racism. When we get involved, when we are pro, pro-equal opportunity, pro-equal healthcare, pro-equal education opportunities, housing, when we are 
pro-something, we organ our anti-racism. I don't like the word anti, like Mother Teresa. I'm not anti-war. I'm pro-peace. I'm not anti-racism, I am. But what I'm saying semantically, we are pro-equal opportunities. Mm -hmm. That will take care of genderism, racism, any other isms, you know? So that's number two. And all of them are going simultaneously. And number three is what you're doing. Thank you. More awareness, more spreading the word. And don't stop discussing. Don't block out your friends who are saying something else. On Facebook, on social media, don't block them. Why, what would you want to do with preaching to the choir? Talk to them, converse them. Oh, but that takes emotional energy. Well, spend the emotional energy. Back off, get energized, come back again. The conversation has to keep going. Podcasts, grand rounds, Facebook Live. I don't know. I'm not that good in technology. But spread the word. Keep discussing. And when you get tired and drained, take a break. Come back. I like that. That need to recharge. And then finally, what? who inspires you this week, Dr. Bosenroy? Uh, I said... That's we the people inspired me. This week, the people of America inspired me and gave me faith this week. In general, I have a lot of people who inspire me. And you will be very surprised that they're not, I will not say Maya Angelou or all the real people Martin Luther King, and I really, really admire Nelson Mandela to the point that my son's wedding party was was at Mandiba in Brooklyn. Do you know that restaurant, Drew? Mandiba, small Mandiba, I'm sorry. Um, That sounds delicious. uh, So I had a wedding party there. That's not a wedding location. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, those are people who inspire me. But, you know, who inspired me this week? My middle son, which you didn't get talked about. uh, My sociologist son who works very hard on police and community. And uh, the things that he does without getting confrontational, without getting violent, because he had enough reason to get violent. He had police uh, stop and frisk at age 14. So instead of getting violent, he was learned how to use a pen as a sword or computer keys. And he got into research and the work he's continuing to do as a sociologist uh, without being aggressive. That's who's inspiring me this week. And Drew, who inspires you this week? You know, I am... I'm going to say I'm looking, I'm sitting, um, I'm looking at my computer and on it is the Biden-Harris Victory Fund website and I'm looking at it and there's an entire page of stickers and pins and their shirts with um, gay pride flags and trans pride flags on them 
And um, and then on the very first page of the Biden for President website, on the bottom of it, there's this diversity of pictures of people. Um, there's, I mean, we have got we have got people all different skin tones. They've put in ways of realizing people's religion and sexual orientation. And it's just amazing to me. And so I'm really inspired by the people who came before us who didn't have this. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that I can sit here um, and see a gay pride flag, two gay pride flags um, on the first page of a president's website um those people who thought you know we're never going to be seen publicly we're going to have to hide and who didn't hide and made this possible um so those people inspire me today yes true very well said because you know it's oh, the pain and the sacrifice and the efforts of the people below before us you know whether it is the blacks the slaves or whether it is the uh, transgender people or having a different sexual orientation and all of that what they went through i mean and had no platform no platform uh, to speak or say anything or do anything. They're really a great inspiration. You're right. Very, very well said. Thank you. And Lizette, who inspires you this week? So this week I'm picking the workers of the United States Postal Service. Ah. Um, I... So my husband and I, we have a small business. We utilize USPS every day. And these are tireless people that show up every day and they're kind and they work really hard and they make sure that our supply chain stays intact. And I appreciated those within the uh, institution who were speaking up and speaking out and saying we are a vital part of the you know, of, of connectivity in our country and we need to protect elections and we need to make sure that uh, governmental institutions aren't used as political ploys or pawns in elections. And so I was really kind of impressed with all the uh, staff and workers who were putting information out in the media and saying, look, this is what's happening and it's not okay and you should be paying attention. Um, Thank you, Lisette. Yeah, you reminded me of this. Most of us here are so into our own. So uh, when this postal against Trump against happened, we donate, we say vote, and then we forget about it. So thank you for reminding us again of this important issue. And yeah, that is they're doing such good work. And. And, yeah. and also, too, I'm really proud of Gen Z because Gen Z has been putting out where they can find voting boxes to leave their write-in ballots. Um, yep. And if you are worried about using the Postal Service, because the Postal Service is telling us we should. So that information sharing on Facebook and Twitter is really inspiring. So, yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited about this election. I'm going to light a lot of candles. <laughs> I'm very much now excited. Thank you. Yes. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Bolsaroy. This was an amazing conversation. I'm so glad we were able to have you on. Thank Thank you you for inviting me because we need to get the word out, you know? Yeah, these are important conversations and you were an incredible resource today. My husband is sitting across from me and just was nodding and smiling the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to your husband. (laughs) Thank you and have a wonderful rest of your Saturday. Thank you. Drew, thank you also for inviting me. Thank you so much. Um, We really appreciate it. Thank you for everything you do with teaching. Teaching those of us with a few years and those who are going to be our future in medicine. (laughs) Thank you. And we need to meet sometimes socially with or without coronavirus. We can wear a mask. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, Lisette. It was wonderful getting to know you. Likewise. Bye. Bye.